The UCLA Professional Program in Acting for the Camera is a graduate-level, competitive admission, non-degree program that begins each fall. Participants gain knowledge from successful industry professionals and receive a world-class acting education in three quarters, consisting of scene study, acting for the camera, and career development workshops. An intimate classroom environment with a maximum of 16 students accepted each year and a certificate of completion from the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television. Students are encouraged to apply early for this life-changing program. Just Google UCLA Professional Programs. You'll find us. Welcome to In the Envelope a podcast from Backstage, the one-stop shop for actors and creators both above and below the line. I am your host, Vinny Mancuso, Backstage Senior Editor and Professional Entertainment Obsessive. I'll be your guide through every corner of the creative industry with the help of some of your favorite stars. Here you'll find intimate, in-depth talks with today's most award-worthy names in film, television, and theater. Along the way, we'll get advice on living your best creative life, relatable stories of the highest highs and lowest lows, and maybe, just maybe, a rare peak in the envelope. I just didn't want to get found out. And I won't call it a fear, but more of an expectation that someone's going to walk in the room any second and say, Fraser, get back in the dish pit, you know, hand me a towel. Because I know how wanting this profession can make people become. And it can really change your brain chemistry to turn you into a different person. Welcome to In the Envelope, the Actors Podcast. I am your host, backstage senior editor, Vinny Mancuso, and as a true child of the 90s, it brings me nothing but joy to let you know that joining us today is the one and only Brendan Fraser. Now, a lot of you already know that to watch Brendan Fraser on screen uh, throughout the 90s all the way up to today uh, was to love him. Uh, from his first roles in Encino Man, School Ties, uh, he was the new kid in town. He played the, the fish out of water with a heart of gold. Uh, then you get to stuff like The Mummy, and he became pretty much the quintessential action hero who felt like your best friend. I would say at least half of the lovable lunkheads of the MCU owe Brendan a, a significant debt. And then it the years went on and it might have felt like he disappeared a bit. Um, Brendan himself likes to tell people he was he was never that far away. And, and that's true. He was working steadily this whole time in great projects like DC's Doom Patrol and uh, Soderbergh's No Sudden Move. But it was just the, this feeling that when an actor is that beloved, any retreat at all, and they will be missed. Uh, and he was missed. Until, of course, Darren Aronofsky's The Whale. Um, Brendan's first major role in, in, in a while, uh, which has also, you may have heard, garnered him his very first Oscar nomination. Best actor in a leading role. Uh, Brendan plays Charlie, an English tutor living with severe obesity and binge eating, uh, who attempts to find redemption over the last five days of his life. Uh, this chat today uh, about the movie and about everything, it's, it's very candid. It covers everything. How he fell in love with acting, how acting <laughs> fell in love with him, uh, the time in between, how he came back, what he was thinking for this role, uh, and how he's changed as an actor and as a person now that he is uh, quote unquote back. 
Let's get right into it. Here is Brendan Fraser. I'm so excited to have you here. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Of course. Uh, so yeah, I was, you know, I was trying to do as much research as I could for this, uh, look up old interviews, look up everything. And I, I right before this, uh, stumbled across brendanfraser.com. Uh, I'm not sure the last time you've seen this site. Uh, I believe it was updated in um, 2001. That was the last time it was updated. Um, <laughs> but there's a there's a ton of really great photography on there. Your photography. Um, well, I, was, I was an amateur enthusiast in those days, and then everything went digital. Clearly, I haven't updated it. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, but there's just there's these really great shots. You know, there's there's a lot of shots from you know behind the scenes of the mummy. There's uh, there's shots of your camel Barney, uh, stuff like yeah. that. Oh, uh, and I'm curious, you know, are you, are you sort of documenting this time in your life that, that similar way, or is this, or is that sort of something that fell by the wayside? Well, I'm always iPhoneographying like the best of us along with the rest of us. Um, also, no, I'm taking a lot of screenshots. Okay. That's interesting. For the highlight, sort of maybe some, I think of them as my, uh, my pinch me pages. <laughs> like yeah. I'm reading things like, I like, just no, it, this is not about me. <laughs> oh, yeah. like. Like I need to, I need I need a bit of prove it action here, and then it joins a file, and then like the rest of the internet just swallows it up into the ether or something. Absolutely, I feel like I do that all the time too. You know, I'll take a screenshot and be like, "Wow, I'll I'll look at this later when I'm in a better space," and then it's just that's just on my phone now. <laughs> it's just it's all about, a little the rest of us is languishing on a hard drive somewhere. Absolutely, um, but yeah. So I'm like, I, you know, I'm looking through these photos and I'm thinking about how. Um, we recently had, or not recently, a couple months ago, we had uh, the actor Coleman Domingo on this podcast, uh, and he he was talking about how he originally wanted to be a photojournalist, uh, and he was just talking about how, like, you know, that overlap between the desire to be an actor, the desire to be a, a, a photographer, you know, he, I think he said, he, and he put it, he said he was, he thinks of himself as an archivist, you know, he studies people, stuff like that. Uh, so I'm just curious, you know, have you ever thought about that overlap between, you know, your desire to take photos of things, your desire to be an actor, you know, your desire to sort of capture the truth of things? I admire photographers who were excellent with candid photography, street photography, wartime photographers who got close to their subjects. If it wasn't good enough, they got closer. It wasn't about what kind of gear you were using. It was living in the moment and capturing it and selecting when that sliver of a second would be um i always admired that intuitive knowledge that all the best photographers have about how to read light and i can kind of spot a really good cinematographer from across a football field you can it's normally the the cinematographer whose tongue is like sticking out of their their mouth like this and they're squinting out one eye and they're just looking at clouds it's it's about uh, reading, as they say, the environment, reading the room. Um, if even the room is outside, is outside, is the outside. I was never that photographer. I was always too shy to walk up to people and they would recognize me. I would never get the moment of the dog smoking a cigar sitting at a typewriter that I dreamed of, you know. Absolutely. Well, something interesting goes on in the periphery. Um, and uh, a lot of my pictures are either stationary items or sort of taken from afar or shot from just out of, out of the the periphery of my purview, my vision, whatever I was seeing, wherever I've been going. In those days, I, I did have a real craving for, I guess, the authenticity that comes with instant photography, namely the Polaroids, the old Polaroids. Mm-hmm. You know, 
found now that sort of peel apart series of film pack film that's hard to find it's very expensive um i felt um i needed to take advantage of the access i had to the interesting places the well-lit environments um and the unique people that i'd be meeting um so i think that's why i picked up a camera and then i had kids and life changed and you put it down and everybody has like a garage full of used skis etc in in my case there's some really cool old gear on the shelves i haven't written it off i'll come back to it again yeah i mean it's funny it's kind of like you know before before that screenshotting was a thing that was how you screenshotted (laughs) screenshotted life you know you had to you had to capture it somehow other than a sketchbook (laughs) exactly and you know that takes time um, but you know, I, th- this website, I, I, I will eventually get off of this website, I promise, but it was very fascinating to me and, and it had a very interesting sort of, uh, bio of your life, you know, it was, it, and it was stuff that I, I didn't quite know about you. And it, it, it specifically mentioned this, um, this West end matinee of the musical Oliver you attended as a child, um, that, uh, sparked something in you. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, from this vantage point, what you remember about that, what that changed in you, anything you can tell me. I saw many plays when I was a little kid at that age. We lived in Europe. Our family was itinerant in a way. Every three, four years, we moved somewhere new. My father's work was then with Tourism Canada, which meant uh, a lot of, you know, starting over and reinventing yourself and finding yourself in new places. I would later realize it stands to reason that that makes sense if you're going to pursue a career in make-believe in a way of speaking, you reinvent yourself all the time in new places with new environments. And when you make a movie or do a play, this sort of disparate family of gypsies come together and create something, best intentions, or otherwise we go our separate way, but there's something to stand for it afterwards. I think when I saw that play as a kid, I I understood that I knew I'd seen the movie of Oliver Twist, but it was a come to life. For me, in a magic giant toy box is presented that only you can see in the West End. I remember the stage pieces were all on rollers, and there was a giant gyroscopic gimbal that must have made the stage turn around loud, like giant lazy Susan, I guess. And and I liked the conformity of knowing everyone knew what they were doing all the time. And and I, I love that when the Artful Dodger was pickpocketing in the open square that he upturned an entire cart of oranges that were were actually tennis balls. <laughs> I think it was very funny at how they bounced around on the stage like oranges never would. But I was also concerned they might fall off. I guess I, I bought into both the reality and the artifice at the same time, who mm-hmm. sinker. And I thought, you know, that's how I want to tell the stories that I read as a, as a kid. I don't know how I'm going to go about doing that. I didn't even know it was a real job necessarily, mm-hmm. but it, um, it was meaningful to me. And, uh, I know that it gave me a strong sense of, um, belonging later on when I was a young man in, in a high school that, I did not make the grade academically to stay in, but I guess they let me slide by because I was in a little theater company. But that ended abruptly when my father's work changed 
and there was uh, no, I guess, bursary or benefit for his children to go to a fancy school anymore, the one like the one that I did. And um, in those days, in in particular in Ontario and Canada, you could well, very often students would go to grade thirteen. So it was really kind of an unknown sort of a gap year that the seniors would play out and get extra credit before they went on to university or it, it was just too long and mm-hmm. i wanted to go back from my grade 13 but they were phasing that system out and uh we didn't have uh we basically, basically we didn't have the money to send me back and they were like hey no, no tuition um and no enrollment and yeah i thought now what i was 17 had that keen interest that i had before uh, definitely a sense of longing to belong and well, not impulsively, but in a way of feeling like I was fulfilling something I'd be getting around to doing later anyway that I've been putting off, and that is auditioning, mm-hmm. making a big step forward to make a choice that you do when you're a young person. I had to do it right away, and it was on the Labor Day weekend before I got the last audition for Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle, uh, which was a conservatory program, and they offered a BFA in four years. And uh, they let me in. I didn't know I was in until the following like Tuesday mm-hmm. morning, when I called the enrollment office and told them my name, they said, "Yeah, you should get here now." So <laughs> it's orientation. Wow. Okay, yeah. The first thing, of course, they said was, "How are you going to pay for this?" <laughs> the most important question. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the bottom line. Um, but you know, when you're sort of, you know, as as you are continuing on, you know, figuring out how you are going to be a part of this world, um, and you're getting to different mediums. You know, you're starting to do films. You're starting to appear on camera. What what is the difference there between that first thing you connected with at the theater, which is that you know that that connection, that that immediate connection with the audience? You know, how did it change for you once you were like, oh, now I'm on camera? I think that's the operative word is that immediate connection. It's kind of like the photography. I wanted the image now. I wanted mm-hmm. to see. I wanted to capture something I could have and hold, and that that I, that could be a, you know an action that's I mean that could be taken spontaneously. And the difference between stage and screen. The world's apart, but so much the same. And naturally, it's about size. Um, if you're painting with a 10-inch brush on a wall the size of a mural, it's probably more of a theatrical sort of image that you're creating. If you're sculpting it with something tiny and small, it's more focused and conciseness, more of a different medium, like film, honestly. Mm-hmm. So I think it just, from, as a medium, I think that's the difference in the, you know, the different energies of, of each way of telling stories through performance picture and sound but i mean it never lost on me that the practicality of frankly needing to earn a living comes from less from treading the boards and more from doing toothpaste commercials at that age or whatever you yeah. get hands on so while i had uh, earned a place to go for a graduate study um, and I had chosen, it was SMU in Texas. I had a burst, I had a scholarship, a full tilt. Of, uh, my instructors, instructors were, some of them were still there. I, I am paid designed a building. I, I, I wanted to go there. I, I, so I passed through Los Angeles in my plan to, uh, check out what this pilot season was about. And I knew that wasn't yeah. flying about, it wasn't about flying around in an airplane. It was it, it was a test run of sort. Mm-hmm. I guess I, I planted my flag. I stayed. I figured it better to learn on the job. And if you can make a little money along the way to pay off all of the steer loans, why not? 
Absolutely. Needless to say, I didn't go to graduate study and I did get a terse letter from them. <laughs> and are you coming or? Are you coming or, <laughs> coming or not? And, and actually they had like, I met somebody and went that year through that. They were like, I was like the, the first Bueller Bueller. Bueller. <laughs> my my name stayed on the class list all the way through and the computer glitched. So they're my attendance record. Was they should have kept it there? Like zero. <laughs> I was. I was like, yeah, they did. I did. I no, he's not here. <laughs> it's such a perfect origin story. You know, you're driving across the country to Texas. You stop in Hollywood and you just stay. Do you ever think about you know the 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 Brendan that that kept driving? You know, the 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 alternate universe where you stayed. You're like, oh, I'll come back, and you keep going to Texas. Um, I don't think I would have carried on to that taking that path. I don't think I was supposed to. I, and I don't mean to get woo-woo, but I think I also kind of like figured out time to do it is now is better is to seize this opportunity um, and uh, throw myself in the middle of the mix and get good and scared and lost and not know what I'm doing and tap dance my way through it and faking it till I make it along with everyone else that I noticed. And well, I guess it, it hasn't really changed in a lot of ways. I still have, I still see being here in Los Angeles where I am right now, which I, I like I said, you haven't lived in, in over 15 years, mm-hmm. something like that. You visits, it's really stayed the same and changed a lot all at once. But I still feel an affinity for this town, especially at this time of year. Because mm-hmm. it's when I arrived 32 years ago and often I would go and, sit on the beach at uh will rogers state park in the sand where it was very cold and damp and stare at the waves and do that sort of romantic thing of what am i going to do with my life and i didn't get any answers and i feel like it was the beginning of a a change and a threshold all at once and um it makes me feel a sense of uh, accomplishment and nostalgia and as if time hasn't gone anywhere at all fast in my life and if it's the day before yesterday and it'll it'll be tomorrow because i'll feel the same way about it mm-hmm. yeah i think um i think it made i think it made sense that i went into my career with this i don't know if it's a demeanor or an attitude or dare i say ignorance i was definitely naive that's for sure and maybe that came across because it would seem that I played a lot of um, fish out of water story. Their element, yeah, and yeah. The new guy town, just trying to fit in, um, goes along to get along, wants to belong. The guy in school ties, you know, he made some sacrifices, personal ones, but you know, he learned a lesson as a result. Be yourself. Um, but he was he he had his nose pressed up against the glass. He wanted, he wanted to be a part of what was behind it, you know, but it came at a cost and all of these parallels were, weren't lost on me. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just didn't want to get found out and that, that I won't call it a fear or anything, but more of an expectation that someone's going to walk in the room any second and say, Fraser, get back in the dish pit, you know, hand me a towel right in the face because I know how how wanting this profession can make people become and 
and it can really change your your brain chemistry to turn you into a different person that you maybe weren't anticipating. Um, and I wanted to um, make sure that I had a strong sense of identity, and that always came from feeling like I was um, I was comfortable in my own skin the way that I felt when I was a kid, you know, going somewhere new all the time. Applications are now available for UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television's professional program in directing. Taught by UCLA TFT faculty and over 20 notable industry guests covering their topic of expertise, this graduate-level certificate program provides an intensive overview of the creative and professional responsibilities needed to launch and sustain a career in directing for contemporary film and television. The program meets for 38 weeknights over a 10-week period each summer. Spots are limited. Admission is competitive. For more information, just Google UCLA Professional Programs. I was watching the um, the Actors Roundtable you did, you know, alongside everybody, and you, you, you said this thing about, you know, knowing that you had to get back to, 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 to that hunger that you had to, to tell stories. But was it that means you know that, you know, is it something you recognize? Is it something you can even pinpoint or is it just, I got to get back to this, this thing? First off, I'm never that far away. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I just say that because I've been very lucky to have worked consistently since the time I was that guy had shown up here in town, sat on the beach, wondered what, what next, what now? Um, a lot happened and it was a blur and on many occasions, um, life has a way of getting in the way. I have I had kids. I, I um, that reoriented all my priorities. Uh, gave me a context for why I'm running around chasing my ass off all the time doing this job, and it made me reevaluate some of the choices I needed to make. Um, when usually when. I've noticed that if you start having kids in your life and you're an actor, you start making films that are more friendly towards them in a way. And I was doing that and I, I wasn't feeling as fulfilled. Um, and the business changed a lot too around 2007, nine. Yeah. Everything kind of went from, you know, sort of a fusion of analog and tech, high tech to just straight up digital, everything. Mm-hmm. And I know that because I was at the tip of the spear for the 3D movement. Which, yeah journey to the center of the earth which is known by james cameron as his beta where he, <laughs> where he tested the gear yeah that we had to shoot it with before he took it off to new zealand and did his epics about indigenous people portrayed as giant blue cat monkey people and and then everything was digital from that point forward and a new generation came of age um in the industry and uh I started working in um, less frequently, and because of the accustomed dips and nodes that you go through in the pattern of any career, really, I'm pretty sure. I always felt like mine was on the ascendancy, although it was kind of going up and down. But if you pull back to more of a fisheye point of view, you can see the chart constantly escalating. So I gave myself a break and worked in the new medium of streaming a little bit and made films that were mass consumable easily digested 
you know, cultural pop films. I had to, I had to do that as a career choice because I, well, in the 90s, you could make movies that were called independent movies. They sort of are now, but you have to ask yourself what they're independent yeah. of. <laughs> yeah. You know, independent of distribution or independent of a studio breathing down the necks of the filmmakers. You, you know, those are considerations. But at the end of the day, you need to get your work in front of people and reconciling that it's on a, on a device like a tablet or your phone even after you've been shooting an epic. It's going to get relegated to something looking at a three by five on a subway. Yeah, on this, this Zoom window right here. That's just weird away, you know. And and uh, just accept that that's the new normal. Um, how do we inspire this word salad journey of mine? I'm telling you, <laughs> sure, but we got there. Um, you know, it's just about the way movies are made um, these days. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it kind of goes back. It, it it reminds me both of something you said in this roundtable. And something you said earlier uh, in this conversation about, you know, that that tactile nature of, of creating things. And you said something about how, you know, the way films are made now kind of lost a wow factor. How did that go back to, you know, m- missing that that just tactile way of the, of connection and, and what's in front of you, the, the tennis balls bouncing? I think the movement now is more towards authenticity. I mean, mm-hmm. the uh, you know, the, 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 the thoughtful drama, you know, small film. Mm-hmm at this time in the industry is really kind of a product of, honestly, I think of COVID for mm-hmm. the fact that we need a protocols a place to keep one another safe. And the the type of work that you do is restricted. You know, I'm, the, the whale is in a two bedroom apartment in Northern Idaho. We built a one-to-one set in Newburgh, New York. We rehearsed it on a um, stage that was had a taped out floor like you would do with a theatrical production. Darren Aronofsky declared us a theater company. We had to observe the rules of of physics and not walk across the tape as if you would do to go through a wall, but go through the front entrance and leave that way, even if we we're going to get pick up a cup, cup, cup of coffee or something. Um, it's it's where we made our mistakes and made our discoveries and and bonded as cast and learned. You know all those things you're supposed to be doing anyway um, when you, you work in this representational presentational medium that is film or, or you know however it's showing up on whatever screen i think because you couldn't make the films that were so broad and mass appealing for you know what, what was possible that the more uh thoughtful cerebral work is what we're seeing um now and mm-hmm. and the trend is of course going the other way you know bigger movies are back Top Gun, you know, Avatar, all of that. And that's important because we need to get asses back in seats of cinemas close, you know, they, they won't wait. And so everybody in the industry right now really has to get on that ascendancy scale and, you know, push that boulder uphill to get back to a place where we have the variety in what's become known as content <laughs> and that we have, um, we have the ability already to tell any kind of story you want. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think maybe we've become a bit complacent and that the need to go towards work that's more authentic is is more evident now because I think audiences are identifying with things that don't have all the bells and whistles and fireworks on it. They just want to know that they can connect to something that they feel they're a part of too. Mm-hmm. And with The Whale, a guy like Charlie it's safe to say everybody knows a Charlie. If mm-hmm. you don't inhabit a Charlie 
an aspect of him themselves or Charlene. I knew it was a, it was a story I wanted to tell because I felt like he's an amalgamation of all my favorite people in my life, mentors, friends, teachers, everyone. Um, I also felt like he's a fictional character. Um, and you know, one person, not the world, one person, it's his story. One person's story mm -hmm. is, is his search for salvation along with four other characters also, um, in this hard won hope story. I wanted to wear a transformational makeup, mm -hmm. which is essentially theatrical, but at the same time, highly technical. Adrian Moreau created this. Mm -hmm. Adrian Moreau, clearly a very talented makeup artist. Uh, just as a sidebar here, there's a little movie called Megan that's out right now. Made out pretty well. <laughs> That's his creation. Also, he did that right after. I don't think I don't think I knew that. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. And and to him, that, that you know, that's a mask. That's a puppet. That's a, an animatronic. That's a it's it's a, an actress wearing something that he created part of the mm -hmm. time. But it just goes to show that anything is infinitely possible. And knowing that, interestingly, because it was a time of COVID, we couldn't get me his actor in a, a room and pour the goop on your face to make the mold build the appliances after compounding. It all had to be done virtually. Mm -hmm. And he's pioneered technology that's here to stay in 3D printing so that there is an exacting domain that he can hold over texture of mm -hmm. pulls of skin, placement of pores, anomalies of coloration in flesh, all of that. And to have Charlie's character body be created virtually from head to toe every micro hand punched hair was all thought out created in duplicate with exacting consistency because the story takes place in only five days mm -hmm. and his health depreciates over those five days too so there's a certain amount of um value to shooting chronologically in the 30 whatever days we had to do this movie um you know beyond all these Elements of filmmaking and wizardry that I have—I just love the craft. I just love it. Um, I, likely because of the theatrical roots that I came from mm -hmm. to create from what you have around found objects from what you have around you. The analog and the digital come together in a way in the film, the whale for me that I did not anticipate. Mm -hmm. I mean, Charlie could have had been a creation such as. A murder robot, you know. Yeah, yeah. For instance, but he wasn't. He was. I mean, it has to be a. It, it, I think that it, it works so well because it's you're in that creation, you know. He's it, a man because he's a human being. Yeah. And so often the makeups that we've seen when creating a person who lives with a larger body have been in service of some sort of dumb one note joke or mm -hmm. Mr. Creosote. Okay, you know it's funny when I was fourteen and. But I, we're, we're beyond that now. We that that's making a statement that's more about a cheap shot or putting quotation marks around a character to just vilify them for a lazy reason. And that's everything that we saw when making this. We were not going to do Charlie's mm -hmm. the creation of Charlie's character body had to obey physics and gravity. It was cumbersome. Believe me, there was a five point harness in there to distribute all the weight that I carried. And it was hundreds of pounds sometimes, depending on the shot. Um, and it affected the way that I moved. It affected the way I felt. It affected the way I, I could breathe. Mm -hmm. All in service of 
and bringing what life you can to this guy whose time is very limited and each breath counts i i wanted to get on board with this project in particular for all those reasons mm-hmm. and also because it was to be directed by darren aronofsky a world-class filmmaker who i had admired and in a way i think came of age in a parallel industry experience mm-hmm. um at the same time although we did not know one another and um when we did meet in uh january of 2020 in new york freezing cold i knew very little about the whale apart from what the word on the street was darren's gonna make a movie uh, and he wanted to talk to you yes i'll take that meeting absolutely also wondering why me are you wanting to meet with me i thought i, I thought i was i thought i was done in everyone's perception of me and he told me i don't know how to word it but he gave me he gave me the impression that he needed an actor who everyone felt that they already kind of knew but wanted to see again but would need to pay a lot of attention to in a new way not according to what they thought formerly of them and without punching my hand in the air i knew that's why he called me in because it's me mm-hmm. and on top of that sam hunter wrote a play called the whale that was produced 12 years ago at new horizons awards winning hundreds of productions have been done of it since then and he adapted his own screenplay for the screen it's own stage play for the screen i mean first time screenwriter mm-hmm. madam that was bungled but you know what i mean and he's clearly very talented and Mm -hmm. has ideas of substance that are evocative and eye-opening and personal it's part of the lived experience that he has had and again it was a theatrical construct Mm -hmm. in it all really goes back to that you know it's 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 that that's just sort of that's the heart of it really agreed we 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 needed to audition for the piece itself i didn't know at the job sadie sink was at a, a staged reading that we gave with music stands in the village at saint mark's theater that darren rented for the day so we could you know read the words aloud see if it works as a screenplay i don't know you know every everyone was mm-hmm. it's a test run of sorts for everyone and when the reading was over and sadie was amazing and I got in the car and drove away. I thought, well, I've I've had some pretty close calls with great material that never came to fruition lots of times before. So I'll just put it out of my mind. Mm-hmm. And would get nice. Put up to a good experience. Yeah. Um. But before I could get as sentimental as that, it was suddenly March of 2020. Yeah, the world changed, what, like three weeks weeks ago? I'll put our sweatpants on and, you know, fill in the blank. But the project went on ice for a couple of months to figure out how this can be done. And um, it could be done, I knew, because I went on to work on an ensemble piece called No Sudden Move. Mm -hmm. Steven Soderbergh directed in Detroit and the pre-vaccines that November looking for a place to bring my ballot to put a drop box in Detroit when there was you're protesting in the streets yeah. it was it was a volatile time for all manner of reasons but I still didn't know if I had um, the whale to 
look forward to or not when I got a text from Darren giving me uh, several articles and a link to uh, watch some documentary and reality television footage, uh, basically research materials. And he still hadn't told me if or not I had the job. And I had to, I had to put my hat in my hand and ask him. He's like, yeah, you're hired. <laughs> Thank you for all of this, work. but do I have a job? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I, and I learned that's typical for Derek because he starts the conversations in the middle anyway, yeah. which you get to know him. And I'll admit to some well, no small measure of creative intimidation when mm -hmm. I first met him. Even the material that I've seen of his work, I'm seen, I hadn't seen all of it at that time. Mm -hmm. But what I had seen, I was gobsmacked by, I was challenged by, I was not given any easy answer to the thorny question mm -hmm. posed to the human condition. And it was, it's everything that I, I want when I go to the cinema or, or hope for. Mm -hmm. You want to be moved. You want to be taken somewhere. And it's why we do that, to get out of reality. And I could do that in a two-bedroom apartment in the story about a man who's having certain regrets about choices he's made in his life, who finds himself in a very unhealthy state, mm -hmm. complicated reasons having to do with his life's choices about who to partner with and, and a child that will never be able to understand from and there 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 are no easy ways to feel about the character and i, I think that's 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 one of the, the 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 most affecting parts of this movie you know i i think of i i think of the big the big blind you know that that it's it's just such a pure moment of uh you know do you ever get the feeling that people are incapable of not caring uh it's a gorgeous line but you know somebody who might be a cynic you know they're like, I have a problem. I don't know if I if I believe that, but your character, the, your performance, you believe it so much that that it makes you believe something that you might not even agree with. Um, Charlie's 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 superpower, if he had one of his, you know, DC characters or something like that, would be to bring out the good in others. That's his power. Magically, he can't do that for himself. Uh -huh. But it explains why he's such a good educator. Why he cares deeply for the future of young people and his students. He's a mentor and, mm -hmm. and, and a linguist and a hell of a funny guy, maybe in days earlier than when we're meeting him on screen, relentlessly positive, annoyingly to those around him often. And, and someone who, who has to see the good in the world. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, he will collapse in on himself for how the world perceives him as he presents on top of all the complicated life choices that he has made because of the bias we as a society hold against those of us who uh, live with the challenge of being in a body that's larger or, or, or obese to the point where it's very unhealthy for them. Uh -huh. This film embraces all of those contradictions. It shows us that, yeah, well, we may feel we know Charlie or a Charlie in our life. It might not be the positive one you see. It's also a dark one. He's made some complicated turns to bring him to where he is. He's he's surrounded by um, his his best friend and caregiver played by Hong Chow, mm -hmm. called Liz, who's a healthcare worker, 
who is the last contact to Charlie's former partner, who is also her late brother. They're both at a loss, and they both need one another deeply. Mm -hmm. And Charlie needs her in a way that compromises her and puts her in an awkward position, to say the least, where she becomes an enabler mm -hmm. of his. If his consumption were anywhere else on the greatest hits of vice, sex, mm -hmm. drugs, gambling, name it, yes, he's victim to those in that infinitely human way that everyone is who lives with those challenges. Mm -hmm. He has the same dopamine receptors in his body and mind as people do at the craps table or people at that have issues with drugs and consumption and, or um, substance abuse. I think they are to be pitied. I think that they are to be given help. I think that they are to be understood and embraced for that, for who they are as people before we vilify them. That's that's a personal mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned the you mentioned the cynics earlier. Um, I've heard many of them. Uh -huh. in from many of them in the response that has come from this film, which is taking on um, a theatrical cinematic experience that's, I'm going to just say it, it's becoming almost a, a catharsis. Uh -huh. in, we have the ritual of seeing a performance together as a group. It's so good to be back in the movies again, sitting in the dark with strangers, seeing something for the first time that you want to be engrossed by and surprised by because I guarantee you that the audience who come to see the whale already have a preconceived notion about it for a couple of reasons. One, they heard about a guy who lives with obesity and you know, maybe they're like, Ooh, ick, I don't want to know about that. And then once they've taken that invitation without a furrowed brow, taking a seat in that theater after five minutes, they see he's just a man. Mm -hmm. He's someone I know. I don't see the seams and the dotted lines around what I would come to expect would be a fully digital creation because anything is possible in the world we live in now and so far as what images we create and consume. But rather, it's more of an analog one. Mm -hmm. It's really an actor, there's truly, encumbered by a costume, just playing objectives and 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 doing your best to use tactics to get around the obstacles along with three, four other act actors and actresses engrossed in this journey of salvation. You you mentioned, and, and I know that we, we have to wrap up kind of soon, but I do have just one or two more questions. And you mentioned that catharsis. Um, personally, do you remember the last moment you you filmed as Charlie uh, and what that was like for you? Yeah, I do. It was, we like I said, we filmed pretty chronologically. The last shot that we needed to get was really a pickup. It, it's when Charlie was he's at home base on his sofa and I was reading um, the responses from the students who he teaches online. He keeps the camera off to preserve their response and in a way his own shame for how the world sees him. And he had been imploring them to write something honest instead of paraphrasing Wikipedia 
and they gave him responses. And one of the lines that made it to the movie came from a student that Sam, our writer, had when he was an expository writing teacher at Rutgers. Yeah, I'm a Rutgers alum. I know all about expository writing. I don't write it. Well, he's your man. Um, He he said, someone wrote that I just have to accept that my life isn't going to be that interesting. I mean, come on. Yeah. How do you how do you lay yourself more open than than that coming from what would be what what a 21, 20 year old? Mm-hmm. That's what Charlie wants. That was that was the scene that was last that we that we that we shot. And prior to that, it would have been the last breathless five minutes of the movie over two days, which was my my personal Mount Kilimanjaro to mm-hmm. summit in getting to there, the whole movie hinges on if or not Charlie can have redemption in the eyes of his daughter for making his apologia to her. And once he does, it commands her to effectively break the spell by reading her copy of the essay that he's recycled and shown to her, to herself when she was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And in honesty and its truth about Moby Dick about a whale and it's the best essay he has ever read for that reason that it's so brilliantly honest the dad on top of it because he loves his daughter so much and she's so wounded and hurt and her sadness has manifested itself in a brand of rage that Sadie Sink should trademark or something she has an ability I'm just I know we're running out of time but real quick people this kid's the real genuine article i was watching her win the game ball every day that i was going up on my line and see been getting lost in the emeralds that are her many faceted eyes and she has a talent that presages her experience i don't know where it's coming from but mm-hmm. i just got to say young people are getting really really fucking really good at acting i've noticed i'm so impressed yeah. I, I i know i god there's so much i want to talk about this movie and i know that we're wrapping up so i do want to just sort of kind of somehow tie all this up with a bow you know you think you think back to what i asked you about you know that that moment of seeing oliver and you you mentioned you know i want to be a part of this no idea how it's going to happen but you know you're you're picturing in your head when you look back on the journey that did happen how did it match up with with the possibility what 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 happened that you thought would happen what happened that you didn't think how did how did those two reality and dream match up for you i never imagined putting myself in a position as a goal to be in films that are awarded yeah put on put on pedestals let's mm-hmm. say um it would sure it would be nice it'd be interesting to find out but it's really very new to me so i'm still again i'm kind of the new guy here um it, it, and that's that's fine and well but i'm not a babe in the woods anymore and it's time to take ownership of the path that i started off all of those years ago and the West End and be at home in my own skin again and stay as vulnerable as I can in the work that I've done because there's been a standard set in my mind which is to be honest just like just like Charlie asks absolutely Brendan Thank you so much for being here. This was an absolute honor, an absolute pleasure. Um, and you know, I, I know that you don't, you, you're not sure what's going to happen next, but 
I can't wait to, I can't wait, because it does feel like, you know, I, you, you weren't gone, but now you're just beginning again. And it's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, as always, to our brilliant producer, Jamie Muffet, and to the whole team at Backstage, Samantha Sherlock, Mark Stinson, Caitlin Watkins, and of course, Casey Howe. Visit Backstage.com, and don't forget, you can subscribe to Backstage with code ENVELOPE at checkout for a free trial. 100% free, you simply cannot beat that. For more exclusive content, find us on Facebook and Twitter, at In The Envelope, and subscribe, share, and leave a comment. Who should we interview next? Let us know. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another peek in the envelope.